scripture lesson today comes from Gospel according to Mark. Mark is in the New Testament, about 65% of the way through the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, it's about right there. Uh, you can always use the table of contents. I hope you brought your Bible with you. The reason we gave our fourth graders Bibles is because when you go to work, you've got to take your tools with you. And so I'd encourage you to bring your own Bible here, bring a pen, uh, bring a journal. You'll see me carry a journal everywhere I go because, uh, as Mr. Rudy Baker reminds me every single meeting, a short pencil is better than a long memory every day of the week. <laughs> We're in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. This is what the Bible says. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the other ten disciples heard about this conversation, they became indignant with James and John. And so Jesus called all twelve together and he said, you know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But it's not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Hey, let's pray for Jeremy as he comes forward to deliver uh, God's message to us today. Oh God of apostles and prophets from all ages past, you have anointed men and women to proclaim your message to us, your people. We pray again now that your Holy Spirit uh, would rest upon your servant, Jeremy, that the words he speak might be uh, for us, the word of God, that they might open eyes, that they might do what only you, Holy Spirit, can do, that they might ignite fire in soul, that they might draw all people to Jesus. We pray that you would uh, assuage every fear, that you would uh, comfort every doubt, and that you would minister to Jeremy and through Jeremy, that all of us together might hear your word and be changed, that we might learn to savor you more and more each day. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Wow, what a delight to be at this church. I've heard so much about you for a long time. Thank you for the welcome. Fellowship was fantastic earlier on. There are really only two kinds of churches. Those where Jesus is not known and not around, and those where he is. And this is a church 
where Jesus is alive. And I hope you never take that for granted. Please also don't take for granted your amazing pastor, Andrew. I could tell you a lot about Andrew. Okay. Lots of stuff about Andrew. But, you know, between you and me, just, you know, not in front of him, uh, you're very fortunate to have Andrew and Claire among you. The music, that was fantastic. Organ. And choir. And piano. And cello. And guitar, did I hear? Was the guitar one of those brought? This is the way to do music, right? We live in a society that is forever fragmented into lots of different groups. And it happens in the church. And the choir versus band versus men versus all that stuff. If you can bring them together, you bring something that no one else will be doing, God says, all right? And that's how they do it. That's how they do it. But they won't do it well unless you sing a lot. I did hear a lot of people sing, but come on, you're Presbyterians, and you're meant to know how to sing. <laughs> I love the talk about fourth grade. When I was, uh, my father was working in Boston once, I went to school for six months and in uh, Phineas Lawrence Primary School in Boston, and it was in the fourth grade. So I have a special kind of hankering after fourth grade. That made me feel at home. By now you'll recognize I don't have a North Carolinian accent. It's a bit more like the royal family, but I don't get, but you Americans, you have this thing about the royal family, but that's okay. Uh, I'm, also, I'm half Scottish and half English, so what you're getting is not the real royal family accent. It's a kind of in-between, and if you've missed the odd word, my apologies in advance. I'll try to say everything two or three times uh, to get going. Right, here we go. A story to begin with, and this is by Roald Dahl, who is a, a children's writer. I think he's English, but he may be here as well. The story is called Upside Down Mice. It's a man of 87. He lives in an old house, and he finds he's got mice breeding in the basement, and he wants to get rid of them. So he gets some mouse traps and baits them with cheese. And then he puts glue on the underneath of the traps and sticks them to the ceiling. That night, we're told, when the mice came out of their holes and saw the mouse traps in the ceiling, they thought it a tremendous joke. They walked around the floor, nudging each other and pointing up with their front paws and roaring with laughter. The next morning, the old man came into the room and he took the chair and he put glue on the bottom of its legs and stuck it upside down on the ceiling near the mouse traps. He did the same with the table, the television, and the lamp. In fact, he took everything on the floor and stuck it upside down on the ceiling. He even put a little carpet up there. That night, the mice came back. They looked up, completely baffled. Good gracious me, said one. Look up there, there's the floor. Heaven's above. We must be standing on the ceiling. We're upside down. One by one, they began to feel very dizzy. And one of them said, Look, I'll faint if I'll have to stand on my head any longer. <laughs> Me too, said another. So the very senior mouse took charge and said, Look, don't worry. We'll all stand on our heads. Then we'll be the right way up. And that's what they did. One by one, they stood on their heads. And one by one, they all passed out from a rush of blood to the brain. <laughs> when the old man came down the next morning, the floor was littered with unconscious mice. <laughs> and he swept them all outside 
once and for all. Now I know a lot of you come here every week. How many people come here regularly on Sundays? Doesn't matter if you're a beginner, I'm just a starter or whatever. No, that's yeah. I hope you're feeling dizzy. Because what's going on here in this place is an upside down project. And that comes out in our reading this morning. To get to know Jesus means you get to join a church. And to get to join a church means you get to join in an upside-down world. And it will make you feel, like the mice, very dizzy. Let's set the scene for this reading. Jesus, he's on the way to Jerusalem just before he enters the city. There are the lights of Jerusalem. And he starts saying some very strange things, upside-down things to his disciples. Upside-down things about an upside-down world. Now, before this, they'd heard a lot of things about the upside-down world in stories and parables, where the rich become poor and the poor become rich, where the humble get exalted and the exalted get humbled, where the firsts will be last and the last will be first. A world where the promoted get demoted, where dishonest business managers get treated like superstars, where the son who walks out on the father and the family and wastes all his money gets a welcome home party while the hard-working one gets left out. All very upside down. But all that was in stories and parables. Now, we're only a stone's throw from Jerusalem and he starts talking as if the upside-down world was happening. It was the real world. It's going to happen in your midst. God is building an upside-down world, and it's going to start with me going into Jerusalem. Weird. <laughs> Leonard Bernstein, your great, great composer, conductor, greatest musician probably of the 20th century, he wrote West Side Story. You remember the song, Could It Be? Yes, it could. Something's coming. Something good. Something up on its way. Could it be? Could it be? And is it good? It just seems upside down. What's so upside down about this world? Four things from this reading. First of all, it's a world where you go up by going down. Now, in most jobs, the way to the top is pretty straightforward, really. You rise grade by grade, level by level. I was speaking to someone in the Navy the other day, and they told me all the ranks from, I forgot what you call it, midshipman, all the way up to admiral. It's about, it seemed to be about 10 ranks, as I could say, and, the way, and what you had to do if you were going to rise to the top. Some of you work in business. You know what it means to rise office by office, boss by boss, floor by floor, perhaps. Or you teach in a school. You get gradually more experienced do more and more teaching, and eventually <laughs> they make you a head teacher, and you do virtually no teaching at all. It's a funny world, isn't it? <laughs> Here at Oakland, you have many who are high up in their professions, I'm sure. And the chances are you got there by hard work. We say, he steadily rose. She climbed her way up, worked up the corporate ladder, up through the ranks of the whatever it is. We talk about people being on the rise. Well, James and Joe, in fact, someone said to me earlier this morning, Andrew Ruth, 
is on the rise. Well, James, yeah, I, I know. I wouldn't say it in front of him, you understand. It's just between you and me again. James and John, here the disciples, are on the rise. They've got promotion to Jesus' inner management group, the cabinet, the steering group. Jesus trusts us, they're saying to themselves. We're heading for the top. And now Jesus is going to deliver the final promotion. He's going to lead us into Jerusalem, preferably with an army. And we're going to cross the Romans, put Jerusalem at the center of the world map. And most important, we're going to be there with him. Top positions in the messianic multinational. Yes, Jesus, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. That's the way it's going to be. You don't know what you're asking, says Jesus. In God's upside down world, if you want to go up, you need to go down. The way to the rooftop is via the basement. The way to the summit is through the valley, the valley of the shadow of death. Can you drink the cup I drink, he asks. He's talking there about the cup of God's wrath in the Old Testament, which would lead to his death, his execution. Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Baptized there means overwhelmed, engulfed, swamped. He's going to be engulfed by sin and evil to the point of dying an ugly death. Can you go through that? And they say, oh sure, of course we can. But they have no idea what they're claiming. You will be baptized, says Jesus. You will be overwhelmed, engulfed. Not by death, maybe, but overwhelmed nonetheless. There will be many here who know, who know what it's like to be in a job or profession or with friends or mates or whatever, and it comes out that you go to church or you're a Christian. And you know that. Feeling of shame, embarrassment, red face. Heck, do I really pursue this? Do I change the subject quickly? That pain that comes with being a follower of Jesus. It's a small example. I'm just finished reading a biography of a Chinese woman, extraordinary young woman, executed in her early 30s, I think. She stood out against the Maoist regime in, in China as a Christian and wrote letters to newspapers, went on protests, and was eventually, of course, imprisoned. In prison, they didn't give her any pencil or paper, but she found a piece of bamboo, and she tore up some of her clothes, and then she cut herself with the bamboo, and with the blood, wrote letters to people. Hundreds, eventually. Letters of blood, as they're called. And she was eventually executed. Overwhelmed. Engulfed. Baptized in this sense. Or perhaps you're overwhelmed by something else at the moment, overwhelmed with anger or overwhelmed by the baffling silence of heaven. You know, you pray and pray and pray and God doesn't seem to speak, God does not seem to be around. Overwhelmed. There will be times like that if you follow Jesus because the way up is the way down. The way to the summit is through the valley and that can be overwhelming. Don't be surprised if the way up is the way down, Jesus is saying. Don't be surprised if you ascend by descending. I know, makes me feel dizzy just to think about it. 
but then the world God is bringing about is upside down. Second, it's a world where you take the lead by being a slave. Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Yes, they know. Why do they know? Because they live in the Roman Empire. And if you want to change anything, you've got to be able to intimidate and manipulate. You've got to have slaves at your beck and call, servants who obey without flinching, and an army you can mobilize in minutes. You've got to have the weapons and be able to intimidate. And there are many people like that around now. You may work for a boss who's a bit like that. I don't know. You may be in situations when someone is ruling you or ruling a part of your life by fear because they have a kind of weapon. I'll be absolutely honest. When I first met Andrew Ruth, he was in a class that I taught at Duke Divinity School, and I found him a bit intimidating. He was then very long hair, curly hair. He was so good looking and so cool. Just, I mean, again, this is just between ourselves, you understand, all right? And I thought, golly, this guy thinks I'm an absolute jerk. So I was very intimidated, and I didn't actually dare say anything to him up a bit, because I thought, golly, he's going to come up with some really barbed comment or whatever. And, of course, eventually I found out he was really warm and cuddly on the inside <laughs> as well. So it was no problem at all. But there was just a trace, I'm overdoing it, Andrew, don't worry, but it was just a trace of intimidation. Let's think of other examples of intimidation. Going to the dentist. Does your dentist intimidate you? When I was 12, the dentist was drilling away without an anesthetic, and it was so painful I put my hand up, and the drill slipped and gouged into my hand. I know, sorry folks, a bit of pain there. And, and it bled, and he was furious with me. I've still got the scar there. So dentists kind of intimidate me. I was once a dentist recently, and I had my head in the wrong position. He said, could you turn to the side? And I said, your assistant is, is much more attractive than you are. <laughs> and, and he said, careful, I have the weapons. <laughs> or I heard of a dentist once who put a, he was a Christian, he put a Bible verse on the light facing the patient. It said, be still and know that I am God. <laughs> well, that's what you call intimidation. I have the weapons. That's how Rome ruled. If you have the weapons, you can rule somebody's life. Lord it over them. Parents with children. You know the kind of parents who rule with fear? You may have had parents like that. I don't know. I certainly hope not. On the national, international scale, it turns into the simple principle. If you've got the weapons, if terror achieves a desired effect, then use it. It's played out on every school playground as well. It's celebrated in 100 TV shows and 100 video games. It shall not be so among you, says Jesus. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Slave. Now that sounds like an invitation to be a doormat. It's not what he means. He doesn't mean you have to be at the end of the telephone line 24 hours a day. It doesn't mean putting up with abuse. It doesn't mean being bullied by every demand that comes at you. No, the point is that a slave lives for the other. The slave, in this culture, looks for what's needed. The slave, in this sense, notices the person at the back of the church who's going through murder 
who's silently weeping and who doesn't want to be at church or be noticed. That's what he's getting at here. The slave thinks, what can I do to make that elderly woman's day more manageable? What can I do to strengthen that failing marriage? That might mean saying hard things. The slave doesn't mean being soft. The slave's eyes and ears are switched on to the other, looking for what really makes people grow and flourish. A slave doesn't see a person and think, how can I use that person? How can that person help me build my empire? No, you ask, what's best for that person? The Christian slave isn't driven by the love of power, but the power of love. That's how they take a lead. I know it makes me dizzy to think about it. But then the upside-down world is indeed upside-down. Not only that, it's a world where roles get reversed. The Son of Man, Jesus in other words, I quote now, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Take that little phrase, son of man, and let's dig underneath it a bit. In the Old Testament, some passages speak about this person they call the son of man. And he's a heavenly figure. figure. And the key thing to remember is that all people one day would serve him. He would rule. All people's nations and languages would one day serve him. But now we've got Jesus calling himself the son of man. And what do they think? Well, yes, of course, we serve him. Serving Jesus is our job, right? Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He's here to serve you. Now, of course, we do serve Jesus, yes. But, you know, before that can happen, we've got to learn how to let him serve us. Lots of Christians around, myself included, certainly. Lots of very active churchgoers. Ultra keen to serve Jesus, actually, which is wonderful. But very reluctant to let Jesus serve them. And that's very often because it's a painful business. If you're the kind of person who's always rushing around fixing things for others, but you never let anyone help you. You're good at handing out money, but you blush when someone presses a fisted dollar bill into your hand because they know you're hard up. Or someone calls at your house and says, we know you're going through a hard time at the moment, here's a meal, or whatever. You cringe. Hey, I do those things myself, thank you very much. You don't like people doing things for you. Well, you know what? You'll have a hard time being a follower of Jesus because there are many times who say, Could you just stop trying to serve me a minute and let me get a word in edgeways and deal with who you really are? A few years ago, a great teacher of mine, great professor, was diagnosed with advanced liver cancer. This man had a stunning intellect. I used to hang on every word he spoke. He was one of the very best preachers I've ever heard. And he made me feel the most important person in the world. For years... He served Jesus, and he served me. Two days before he died, I visited him. Now he could hardly speak. 
and in the dim light of his hospice bedside, he asked for communion, for bread and wine. And I could tell it was indescribably hard for him, humiliating in the extreme. He asked me for communion. I gave him his last communion. His very, very emaciated hands couldn't even hold the cup. He had to suck the wine through a straw. A straw. So the revered teacher becomes the child. The roles reversed. And yet, and yet, surely, that day, two days before he died, a few days before he died, he found a new peace with God because he had let Christ serve him through me, one of his little pupils. Makes me dizzy to think about it. But then the world God is building is upside down. Last and fourth. It's a where God it's a world where God defeats evil from below. This God doesn't work from above, but from below. The Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many, 10.45. He says this, remember, with the lights of Jerusalem in sight, there he will give his life. This is how God is going to defeat evil. God doesn't sort things out in this world by hurling a thunderbolt at them from some great height from above. He bears the pain of the world from below. He doesn't defeat evil by shattering it from above with laser beams of superior power. He will go under it all and let it do his worst to him. This is Jesus' way. This is God's way. The upside-down God. This is the way the world gets, as it says here, ransomed, that is, freed, liberated, won back. And of course, it's all upside down. It's not the way our world normally works. In this world, so often, evil gets answered by a fresh evil and often a greater evil. So let's say you get home. And, uh, no, let, let's say, not today, let's say after tomorrow. You go to work, let's say, and you come back home. And uh, you've had a really bad day. And you've been got at. But you've kept your silence and you've behaved yourself. And you get home and you take it out on your partner or flatmate or whoever. She asks you just a simple question about paying a bill and you snap back. She bites her tongue and doesn't say anything. But she dumps her anger on the cat by kicking it hard. The cat can't kick back, so it dumps his anger on the carpet, literally. <laughs> which you're told to clear up, so you storm out and text a friend, who then has his evening spoiled, and so on. We get hurt, we send it out again in another form. And very often, with double the force. If I get beaten in an argument on Monday, I'll top it with a better argument on Tuesday. The five-year-old gets repeatedly abused. All too easily, they turn into a much worse abuser. In other words, if we're the victims of evil, we'll send the evil back out again, but with more of the same. On the international scene as well. 
a country gets its national security threatened, it responds often with a bigger counter threat. In Syria, an incursion here gets by, answered by an incursion over there, but with double the force. We talk about an escalation of violence, an escalation of hatred on ever higher levels, ever rising cycles of revenge and counter revenge, people pounding each other from ever greater heights. But suppose there was one place in history where that didn't happen. Suppose there were one person in history who from the start wasn't going to do that. Who took on hurt but gave back none. Who took on hatred but didn't send hatred back out again. And suppose that led him to a hideous death, a crucifixion. And suppose what we're seeing there isn't just the hatred of the Romans on him and the Jews who killed him, but the hatred of the whole world on him. All the things which wreck our lives. You're hurt why you didn't get that promotion. Your rage with a parent who scarred your life. Your envy at why everyone else does so much better than you. The anger of an angry world, broken world, all focused onto Jesus. He doesn't send all that muck back out again. He takes it down into the depths, down into death, down into the black hole of hell once and for all and rises on the third day freed from it all so we can start to be free. That's how God defeats evil, not by meeting it with a greater force from above but they're coming in Jesus and absorbing it from below. What is the cross? It is a place where evil goes in, but doesn't get out. What's a church? A church is a place where all sorts of gossip comes in, but doesn't get out. Where hurt comes in, but where people work with that hurt so it doesn't just get turned out as another form of hurt and anger. What's a Christian home where all the muck of the world can go in, but it's not going to get out because Jesus is there bearing it as he supremely bore it on Good Friday. What's that going to look like in a church? Well, you remember the extraordinary pastor, not far from here in Fayetteville, Larry Wright. Just under, well, was that a couple of years ago now? A man walked into one of the black churches. He's actually, yeah, that church is in Fayetteville. And he was holding a semi-automatic assault rifle in one hand, loaded ammunition clipped in the other. And as he said later, I came with terrible things on my mind, unquote. This was quite soon after the Charleston church shootings. The pastor, a man called Larry Wright, stopped preaching. <laughs> That's a wise move. The 60 or so members of the congregation started to panic, and some started heading for the exit. But the pastor walked towards the man. He took the weapon and gave it to a deacon, patted the man down, and then called on the deacons to embrace the man and make him feel welcome. In his words, I quote, I told the congregation, it's okay, he wants prayer. And I began to pray for him, and the power of God hit and fe he fell to his knees and began to cry and weep, and he had his face on the ground, unquote. The man was invited to sit in the front pew of the church to listen to the rest of the sermon. 
I just love that, don't you? Oh, no, it's called the police and get him out. No, it's a church. We're not stopping the service. He listens to the sermon. Foster, quote, I finished the message. I did the altar call and he stood right up, came to the altar and gave his life to Christ. I came down and prayed with him and we embraced. It was like a father embracing a son. That's what the upside down world looks like. Because it's not going to happen anywhere else, is it? Realistically. That will change the world. Where that sort of thing is going on in a church, marriages will be healed. When that sort of thing is going on, abuse, however horrific, will begin to be healed, dealt with. It makes me dizzy to think about it. But then the world God is bringing about is upside down. It really is. We've just been building Jengas and other things next door. Some of you were there. Imagine the Jenga was upside down. Then it becomes a very interesting game, doesn't it? Just think about that. A final thought. We love church and we adored the games and the coffee and the music and Pastor Andrew's good looks and all these wonderful, <laughs> these wonderful things. But hey, tomorrow we've got to go back to the real world.
A part of joining God in this incredible effort of bringing up there, down here, of inverting all of reality, inverting our lives until they align with what is really real, is that we come to this moment not because God needs us, because we need God. And so what we're getting ready to do, this offering, is not uh, something we have to do, that we're obligated to do. It's something we get to do, joining God and bringing heaven to earth and inverting all of reality. Let's worship God with God's tithes and our offerings. <laughs> 